How long have you been teaching at the University of Lethbridge? And um, uh, what was your, like, what's your main focus here? Like, when, what do you teach exactly in anthropology? Well, I teach, I teach a course in Central America. I teach a course, um, my main core, my main course that I teach is a 4,000 level course called the Anthropology of Performance. So we basically study different cultures uh, through performance. Okay, and compare and contrast cultures, uh, human relations through performance. And the students are... The students are, are able through this performance to, uh, to explore their own understanding of other no, cultures through performance. The, they they rehearse. Hmm? I can't see us. Okay, so let's start. Sorry about that. Okay. Oh, no, no. I'll have to take it out. Put it back again.
and the uh, small group of uh, elite, tremendously rich people who benefit most from these corporations. So turn the TV off. Turn the TV off. Put on the Internet. Use your critical intelligence. The information is out there. There's all kinds of other entertainment that we can make in our own way.
can't hear. Did you see the music from your video still? This and that's it. Can you hear me now? Yeah. yeah? You can hear? Yeah. So you have to sure. start. So this this is what we're saying is that this is the connection yeah, okay from where we're at um, yeah you can hear you can hear yeah yeah okay so okay so this is this is uh, one of the things that uh, I like to do put together little performances you know creating these critiques and invite everyone to do them uh, you don't have to be an actor or anything so this is one of the things. How is this connected to uh, my work in anthropology? You know, I do research. Um, I do research in Nepal. For the last two years, I, I have been going to to Nepal, specifically to uh, the eastern part of Nepal, where the problem of uh, the war is uh, at its peak. In this area, I have been working with a, a theater company, a theater group of Dalits. Okay, these these uh, Dalits are members, obviously, of so-called untouchables, uh, and uh, they, through theater, fight against caste discrimination. Um, they try to raise awareness among their population that uh, uh, being discriminated against because you were born in a particular caste. Uh, is, is, is against the human rights, uh, is against uh, humanity itself. So, but it's hard because uh, to create awareness, uh, it's very hard because people are obviously have been uh, naturalized, have been uh, socialized to believe that that's a system that you, you cannot get out of. So, so they, my, my experience with uh, untouchables or the concept of untouchables is uh, in Indian Hinduism. Mm -hmm. Is this an extension of that? Uh, it's, it it's Hinduism, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's very similar, almost almost uh, similar, but it has other dimensions of, of Buddhism uh, as well. But uh, basically the same thing. You know, untouchables are not allowed to um, perform certain rites in the temples, or they are not allowed to the temples uh, with the higher caste, etc., etc. And, uh, and so I've been, for the last two years, researching you know uh, what it what it means to be uh, an untouchable. What it means to be a Dalit, um, living in a in a war zone, okay, where uh, where they live is a, is a small town of about maybe five thousand people, and uh, it's a garrison town. It's just basically taken by the army, and the army controls the town from several vantage points. Um, everybody, the army knows when you come and when you go. It's basically that's the only thing that they control. The rest is controlled by the Maoists. So it was very interesting to see how this theater group could work and fight against caste discrimination under these circumstances. Okay, was it dangerous for them? Uh, if, if how could they maneuver? I mean, how could they use uh, this political language of you know fighting against caste discrimination? Um, through, through theater under these circumstances. So I have been going to, for the last two years, uh, trying to see what, how they do it. The way they do it, they take a position of neutrality. Okay, in, in not only in public but also in their personal life, personal lives. They 
they uh, they have acquired this this understanding. Uh, okay, whatever they do, survival tactics. Survival tactics. Okay, so they get along with the Maoists and get, get along also with the government. Okay, but at the same time they keep doing the work of fighting against caste discrimination, which is very interesting. So they have they have um, made available to them certain tools. For example, mm -hmm. they talk about gender discrimination mm -hmm. as a bypass to talk about caste discrimination, for example. Because to talk about caste discrimination is more political, but if you talk about gender discrimination, it's something that is more accepted uh, in the mainstream uh, political parties, okay? And it's something that the Maoists don't, don't have a problem with, and the government doesn't have a problem with, because, okay, it's accepted mm -hmm. to talk about gender discrimination. But okay. the way they do it, they, for example, the play that I'm gonna show you, the photos that I'm gonna show you, the way they do it is that they, Associated, okay. They, they they work in terms of association. Associating, for example, caste discrimination, uh, gender discrimination with caste discrimination because the women who are discriminated against are Dalits. Okay, mm -hmm. if you're talking about gender discrimination, in a sense, you're talking about caste discrimination. There must have been uh, much uh, interest in a country that has a revolutionary movement with yourself. Mm -hmm. who uh, in your Nicaraguan years um, had an experience with a successful revolution. So people ask me, I mean, why, why Nepal? Uh, first of all, I, ch I chose Nepal because it's, it's a nice place to go. Uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, and secondly, obviously, because I was interested in, in this notion of revolution and I wanted to, to study a theater group that was kind of working within the context of changing, mm -hmm. okay, social change. and. Uh, um, I mean, in the system, the social system in, in Nepal, the political social system in Nepal, it's, it, it's, it's almost feudalism. Okay? Mm -hmm. There are people who are actually um, slaves. Mm -hmm. okay? They're owned by, by people. So you have the encounter between uh, the feudalist system and at the same time, and then you have Marxist theory of the 1960s and 50s. Okay, look at like Latin America. So I could see certain elements of Latin America that uh, that are that are still important in Nepal. For example, if you go to the website of the Maoists, the Maoists believe that uh, what they are doing is, is inevitable, and that the whole world is going one day become Maoists because that's their only way to go. Okay, so globalization for them. Is, is that you know bringing everyone to to their fight, and they they have connections with other Maoist movements in Latin America, in Africa, and uh, whatnot. I haven't had any contact or connection with the Maoists per se because it's quite dangerous for my informants, and and I don't say where my informants are either because I will put them in danger um, because they work with with Dalits, and Dalits are the poorest, and 60% of the Maoist army is made up of, of poor people and Dalits, okay, lower mm -hmm. caste people. Mm -hmm. So uh, even if, even though they don't want to work directly with them, they have to, because mm -hmm. if you work with Dalits, you work with Maoists directly. So I want to show you uh, some of how is this performance that we did here connected. When I came to Nepal last year, I came to see my friends in in this town, and uh, to see what they were doing, and they, uh, they, they 
they wanted to put together this workshop and they wanted me to help them to put together this work. one week workshop uh, uh, helping okay instructing Dalits okay giving them the tool the tools of theater so that they could go from all communities around this town so they could go and spread the tools the theatrical tools so that they could educate uh, they could communicate so a tool for for social change actually so and they asked me one of the things that they asked me to help them organize it and I said sure I talked about theater and revolution in Nicaragua for example obviously not talking about revolution but talking about social change because it was dangerous to talk about revolution under the circumstances of the war but so they asked me uh, so they wanted to know a lot about Nicaragua they wanted to know a lot about Canada and they asked me how do Canadians do theater and what do they do and I said well I cannot talk about all the experience of theater in, in, in Canada um, I can tell you some of the performances that I have been involved in and I show them GBS and yeah. and so they decided to put a show or to do a performance similar to TV head yeah okay and so they use they use all the elements uh, and the workshop was one week long and the theater piece that they were constructing was about mm -hmm. gender discrimination in the workplace mm -hmm. it certainly never would have occurred to me as we were participating in the event turn your TV off that uh, this was going to have an impact in Nepal mm -hmm. that this uh, event in Lethbridge would affect uh, events or consciousness in Nepal so it seems it's an interesting example of the question is what did they understand by it what did they understand by the by the performance and, mm -hmm. and, and so when I asked them so what do you think and, and they say well this performance is about changes the system that controls you through TV mm -hmm. even though a lot of them don't have TVs but they still understand that you can be controlled by TV okay mm -hmm. even though a lot of them are peasants and, and have very little education and they, they are not exposed to, to, the, to the media that we're exposed here, but they still have an understanding of what's going on in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, who controls the media, controls okay, power. Mm -hmm. uh, and so their, their performance was, in a way, uh, a connection to, to our struggle. Mm -hmm. It's telling us that, okay, you have that problem there, we have problem there, but we understand it. Now, shall we look at some of these uh, pictures that you took from... Uh yeah, I will show you. Um, yeah. Basically, it's like about 50 pictures, and I'm gonna just sh uh, at the start of the. I'm gonna start with uh, the beginning of the workshop. Uh, a lot of the, the members of the group are very young. They are 16 to 23. Okay, and uh, all both, even though Nepal is a very okay, there, there's a lot of gender discrimination in Nepal, especially against women. Uh, in this particular theater group, women uh, participate a lot, and they were the majority of the theater group. So slideshow. So while you watch, we can talk a little bit about it. So you took a lot of video there, and eventually you'll have a, a show or a presentation. 
it not working? You only have yeah. one picture selected. If you look in the top bar, there's just the one picture there. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. There we go. So, I just let, let go all of them. Okay. Play. Consider the the real life and the uh, hardships and dilemmas of real life, and maybe by seeking to dramatize issues in real life, mm -hmm. it, it makes you more conscious. It's a way to uh, illuminate or draw attention to or present in a, in, a, in a new light. For sure, uh, according to Augusto reality Boal, that you might just take for granted otherwise. Yeah, according to Augusto Boal, actually, when you act in the theater is actually reality. I mean, you, it's an action. You're, you're, it's a step. It's not rehearsal. You are. Uh, it's an action mm -hmm. against whatever dominant situation you are fighting against. So, in a sense, is the, the 
the fact that they are participating in this is, 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 is interesting. Yeah. Now here we come to the event. I noticed some TV heads. Uh, yeah, to the performance. Briefly. So they, this is what they do. They, this is where the actual discrimination, uh, gender discrimination happened, where a woman was paid less because, obviously because of her gender, and they, she was performing the same task. So what they are here recreating, this is the machine that they are recreating, and, and then they invite, invite the, the public, they, they, they recreate a scene where the woman pay, gets paid less, so the woman says, why are you paying me less? And, uh, and uh, the boss says, well, because you're a woman. And so th they ask the public to find solutions for this woman. What can she do? Okay, so it's an interactive kind of theater, looking for solutions. The theater doesn't have solutions to their problems. They have to come up, come up with their own solution. This is a, a, um, a tool uh, developed in the 1960s by Augusto Boal in, in Brazil and then in many parts of Latin America. I mean, it's very interesting when you say that it's more acceptable to talk about gender discrimination than to talk about economic discrimination, to talk about class relationships. And uh, I but, can't help wondering it, if that isn't a, a factor even in, in this society, that uh, mm -hmm. it's very difficult to talk about mm -hmm. uh, material relationships in society. And, you know, there's always the assumption, well, if somebody's poor, it must be their fault. There must be uh, Absolutely. some personal failure. Mm -hmm. um, so we used to believe that uh, Latin Americans were poor because they were lazy. Okay. Oh, because I mean, I still hear those comments that Latin Americans are poor because they are not intelligent enough, or they are not as intelligent as the white man. Okay, so there's a, the core of discrimination, at the core of inequality, is this assumption, okay, this internalized assumption that basically are stereotypes about other people, okay, mm -hmm. the poor, women, uh, the gay, gay people, etc. So, if you have any questions about, go ahead. Yeah, it'd be good to get some impact from down the hill there. I got a few comments. I don't know if I'm mic'd. Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. very well. Yeah. Okay. Uh, first of all, it's really interesting, Umberto. Um, uh, two things. Firstly. And they're related. The first one is when you're talking about the time in the mountains, uh, <clears throat> you, you use several times the word problem and problematic. And uh, the other thing is the, uh, the word inevitable. The word inevitable uh, you used in describing the Maoist's view. I think this, this is coming from this uh, scientific, what they call dialectical materialism and this presentation that uh, you know there's an inevitability and that there's there's nothing you can do and we hear this word inevitable all the time in terms of the the presentation of globalism from the economic uh, conquest point of view so um, if if we're looking at this inevitability or this desire for uh, belief inevitability, then we can't see a problem, or at least we believe that there's no solution. I think that that it's really nice when you start talking about a problem and start looking for a solution. Then you're you're uh, 
you're challenging the, the, the words that are used and you're, and you're disrupting the inevitability because you can demonstrate in your own reality that another world is possible, another, another uh, road is possible. Absolutely. So do you have, it's a comment, obviously, and uh, do, you, do you have any problems the way I use those two words? So uh, they're not, um, I didn't see them as um, contradictory in a sense. No, they're not contradictory uh, at all. As, complement, as complementary within, within the particular given context, the context of the revolution in Nicaragua, for example, uh, the problems were social problems, obviously, uh, problems of communication, problems of uh, misunderstanding, and uh, because there, are, there were actually problems of class, okay? The, the, there was uh, an idea, I mean, uh, uh, socialized idea that uh, people, urban populations were superior to the, the peasant class, and they still have that uh, belief in Nicaragua, for example. So to, to become truly revolutionary, you had to overcome that and become a new person. Okay, so I saw that as, as, a, as a problem. One of the uh, uh, factors that we're dealing with is many in the class have read uh, Open Veins. Okay, Galeano. Uh, by Eduardo Galeano, 500 Years of Pillage of Latin America. Mm -hmm. So you're giving a, a commentary um, rooted in much the same point of view as uh, Galeano. Different uh, layers. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one of the criticisms I read about and heard about with the uh, Nicaraguan Revolution, and it speaks to this question of inevitability or this perception in in amongst uh, Maoists in Nepal that, the, that history is pointed in a certain direction, that it's inevitable that we'll, as a global society, reach the same destination. This destination is some kind of socialist Maoist uh, mm. quality. Utopia. Yeah. yeah. And, and it is a kind of monocultural idea that, that somehow uh, all societies have the same um, Route of progress, the trajectory. same destination. Yeah. They're okay. all on the same trajectory. So we have all the same context. Yeah, yeah. and then and this became a factor in in the Sandinistas' relationship with the Mosquito Indians, particularly mm -hmm. the mosquitoes on the uh, on the coast, on yeah. the Gulf of Mexico, uh, felt that uh, oh, they no, were being in, in Nicaragua Atlantic coast, yeah. Atlantic coast, that yeah. they were being uh, pressured to. Um, mm -hmm. You know, to assume a model, to, to they were being pressed into a mold of some socialist utopia, well, but it wasn't they, a mold that conformed was, to their own culture. That was alien to them for historical reasons. Yeah. Because the, one of the, the problems it was that that uh, that the, the, there was a misconnection or a misunderstanding between people from the Pacific Coast and the Atlantic Coast. Okay, there was um, there was a historical tendency by the people who had the power to basically ignore the Atlantic coast. It was just a place where you went to get the resources, wood, uh, uh, a gold. Hinterland, uh, yeah, a hinterland where you could, yeah, there was no road. There's still no road from the Pacific coast to the Atlantic coast, okay? Mm. So there were some communities there that were, and also historically, uh, the people from the Atlantic coast were more connected to, to England, okay? Mm -hmm. Because uh, a lot of the people who inhabited there came um, escaping slavery, obviously, as 
and uh, also there are some local populations. The Miskitos are, uh, and the, the Sumos and the Ramas, they are obviously uh, indigenous populations that have been there for, for, for a while. Mm. But so it became this, uh, the, um, the uh, first the English and then the Americans became very influential in that area, in that, um, in that sector of the capital. Yeah. That combined with the abandonment that they felt from the central government, that they didn't understand the culture, that they wanted to impose uh, Spanish on them, that they wanted to impose a system that was alien to them, uh, plus the propaganda from the United States that created, created this virulent reaction from them, uh, mm -hmm. that, uh, they, and then they were manipulated into becoming uh, members of the Contra-Revolution. Yeah, actually yeah. the CIA sent in uh, Indians from North America, Russell Means uh, being one of them, to stir up uh, sort of Indian patriotism mm -hmm. against the Sandinista Revolution. Uh, and it, it worked in the end. Now, yeah. uh, the, uh, the assault on the Sandinista Revolution became, in a sense, the centerpiece of Ronald Reagan's foreign policy. Mm -hmm. uh, Ronald Reagan uh, pictured himself as a crusader uh, seeking to uh, overpower the evil empire, mm. putting the, what he saw would be the last push to uh, uh, make communism uh, disappear, make... Um, especially, uh, especially in Central America. And yeah, and so, the, so, so arming the Contras, uh, and of mm. course, you know, it, it was in a, in a period of time when um, after Vietnam, uh, there just wasn't the public opinion in the United States that would allow the United States Army to send in American mm -hmm. boys into harm's way. Uh, the, the spectacle of body bags coming in has happened in Vietnam, you know, mm -hmm. 50,000 American uh, boys coming back in body bags created such a uh, revulsion in the public opinion that, mm -hmm. that even uh, a Reagan with all his powers of persuasion uh, wasn't in a position to send in uh, U.S. troops, so instead they had to create these proxy armies. It was uh, convenient. It was it was a war of low intensity, okay, where they did not uh, have any uh, Americans in danger, okay. So they just uh, put money into into the equation and uh, a lot of persuasion, and they used proxies. You know, they used the the the. Uh, Contras were trained by Argentinians, members of, obviously, of the dictatorship in Argentina. The, uh, the regime the where regime. about 35,000 people just disappeared. The Israelis also um, were instrumental in uh, uh, providing uh, the anti-Sandinistas, the, anti the Contras, with uh, ammunition and, and, uh, and weapons and uh, intelligence and training. Okay. Why would the Israelis be involved, do you think? I think they were pressured. Mm -hmm. They were pressured by the Americans, obviously. You, you need to do it, and uh, and their I guess their expertise in counterinsurgency. That's yeah. the word, the official word in the Palestine, you know, vis-a-vis yeah. the Palestinians. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so, and uh, we have to um, emphasize here that also the Israelis supplied with the uh, weapons to Somoza as well. Mm -hmm. Okay. All the. Uh, most of the weapons utilized by the Somoza to kill most of the Nicaraguans were, were Israeli-made.